Good morning, good morning. Uh, worship leader Jake is off now. Pastor Jake's up here, Preacher Jake. So, so the pre- Preacher Jake is more of a Baptist, and the worship leader Jake's more of a charismatic. It's the bipolar nature. Just kidding. Some of you are like, that's offending me. All right. So excited to be here today. Um, I'm not going to take a lot of time to talk about the Ducks' absolute beatdown of Arizona in the desert, but I will mention that. Go Ducks. And uh, we're, we are finishing up a series today called God Has a Name. And we were joking before because we've been, you know, promoing this one like, you know, this is the one like you got to come back and the one people want to know about, you know, I don't know if that's true, but we at least think that. And, and, um, and then we were joking, like going a different direction. And then I was like, yeah, I was thinking about just doing a one-off message and just skipping this one. And, and uh, but we're not doing that. We're actually going to get into this and talk about the final passage here, the final uh, part of God Has a Name coming out of Exodus 34. If you haven't been with us in this series, I'll just bring you up to speed a little bit. We are talking about Exodus 34, where Yahweh, uh, God, reveals himself to Moses. This is thousands of years ago on a mountain. Moses says, show me your glory. And God shows up and he says, this is who I am. And, And he gives in this passage the only place in the scripture where God tells us what he's like from God's own words, in God's own words, in his own uh, his own self-revelation. And it's actually the most quoted passage of scripture in the Bible by the Bible. So you see it laced all throughout the whole entire Bible from Old Testament to New. If you know what to look for, you'll see these words that are there as we read through this. And what's so incredible is this gives us God's character, not just his attributes, that he's powerful, that he's, you know, really strong, but it tells us what his character is like. So who is this God that we know that we serve? And so we're looking at Exodus 34. It says, as Moses listens to God, this is what he's saying. I am the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger. That's the orech apayim, right? Long nose is what it says there. God takes a deep breath before he gets angry. Abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And yet this is the part we're going to talk about today. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Somebody say, uh-oh. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. Somebody say, what? 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 <laughs> What does it mean? Because we've just heard about how loving and how compassionate and how gracious and how long-nosed God is. Uh, if you're like, long nose, what does that mean? Well, in Hebrew, the expression slow to anger is just long nose, long nostrils, and it means God takes that deep breath, right? It, it, like he doesn't just freak out and get angry immediately. He, there's, a, there's a build to that. He's patient. And so then we hear this passage, and it might make you a little bit uncomfortable. Well, it makes me uncomfortable too. So if, if you feel uncomfortable... Welcome to the club, right? But, but before we talk about what this means, and before we talk about kind of reconciling what I would seem to be an apparent paradox between these, uh, these, these, the two passages here, or the two verses in this passage, I think it's important that we say this, that we must conform to the scripture rather than conform the scripture to our own feelings or preferences, We are not smarter and we're not more ethically advanced in 2022, woke as we are, to we're not more ethically advanced than Yahweh. And we're not we're not smarter than the than the Bible. And this is one of the things that I think it's important because I am a millennial pastor, and millennial pastors get criticized for a lot of reasons. One, skinny jeans, which I don't apologize for. (laughs) I've even worn the flannel today to really like sell the, the the thing, but Millennial uh, theologians and millennial pastors oftentimes will get caught into this trap of trying to reconcile scripture to culture rather than telling culture to reconcile with scripture. 
And, uh, and that, that, that's what, as a church, in case you're confused, at Joy Church, we are not trying to reconcile Scripture to our culture. We do not hold our culture and say the cultural standard of sexuality, the cultural standard of what we believe or think that we're more ethically advanced, the Bible needs to then come under and we'll explain Scripture in light of culture. Rather, we actually want culture to come under Scripture. Now, before we ever talk about culture coming under Scripture, what has to happen first is the church coming under Scripture. See, most of the time in the Bible, God's like, hey, those of you that are outside of my family, outside of my kingdom, uh, you know, you need to turn and repent. You need to come and there's grace and mercy for you. But where God's judgment often lies is on his own people because God wants his own family to actually believe what he says. Hello. And so as a church, one of the things that we're always striving for, pushing towards is we want to say, okay, any part of the Bible that makes me feel uncomfortable um, because it seems like something's going on that maybe doesn't jive with my view of God or, or what it means to be a Christian or whatever, I need to look into that, but, but I need to do what John Mark says here. Uh, he says, as followers of Jesus, we follow our rabbi's example. He took the scriptures very seriously, so do we. We come under the authority of scriptures as an expression of our submission to Jesus as Lord. We could do a whole sermon on Jesus as Lord. Jesus isn't your boyfriend. Uh, Jesus isn't you know, just a great moral teacher. Jesus isn't just the person that just wants to make you feel cozy and give you goosebumps. Jesus is Lord. He is the king of kings. When we sing worthy is your name, we're not saying that like worthy is your name because that makes us feel good to sing it. We're saying like your name is the bee's knees, the cat's pajamas, like you're it. Alpha and Omega, like he is king, he is Lord. And so we take all of scripture. We don't skim the Bible, pull out the parts we like, and then just throw out anything that we don't, that doesn't fit with our Western progressive views. Um, what he says here, John Mark says, when we get to something we don't like, we deal with it. We question and probe and study and nuance and wrestle. And maybe we even protest against it. But in the end, hopefully we say yes to it, even if the pill is hard to swallow. So as we look at the end of this passage and, and kind of sitting as the, the end of all of Exodus 34, 6 and 7 um, that we've been studying, there's some deep stuff here, really deep stuff. Very quick, that's first, sin is a big deal to God. Um, if you don't think sin matters because, man, it's 2022 and just, you know, everything is sort of like whatever do it makes you feel good. No, Yahweh puts sin in this part as he reveals his name because it is a big deal. Sin is at the root of every problem in and with the world, and it's also in us. Yeah. Number two, God will not ignore or forget about sin. He has to deal with it. Why? Because he is utterly holy, yeah. utterly perfect. If you ever see God and you distance from his holiness, you're missing who he is. God is perfect. And he can't be anything else. He has to deal with sin. He, just, he can't ignore it. He can't just take a shortcut. The books have to balance. Okay? There has to be an accounting that needs to square. Third, sin isn't just around us. Because oftentimes we talk about sin and it's this external thing. Man, the world is bad. Culture is bad. Those politicians are bad. Those bankers are bad. My neighbor is bad. And then for us, it's like, I made a mistake. <laughs> Hello. My wife did this. My husband did this. I just messed up. I just a little boo-boo, a little accident, right? We call our own sins a mistake, but for everybody else, they meant it. Yeah. They wanted to do it. They loved it. I didn't. It was just a mistake. But sin isn't just around us. It's in us. It's not just an external problem. It's an internal problem. And it's hereditary. Uh-oh. I'm on a sinking ship of my sin, and my whole family is along for the ride. And so we go back to this passage. Here's God. I am 
slow to anger, I'm abounding in love and faithfulness. I maintain my love, my covenant love. We talked about that a couple weeks ago to, to thousands. But I don't leave the guilty unpunished. In other words, I deal with sin. And sin has a hereditary impact. Visiting is the, the verb here in Hebrew. I think I'm going to mispronounce it because I didn't actually study how to pronounce this one. But pakad, I think, is what it is. Like John Luke pakad. No, I'm kidding. But <laughs> means to visit. Uh, this passage, the, the big question that we're going to talk about today is, does God punish children for their parents' sins? That's the big one that we've been talking about. What, what does this mean? What, we want to look at this. Understanding we're going to submit to Scripture regardless of what the answer is. But the answer, just to take away the pressure, is this. No. Simply, no. God does not punish other people and specifically does not punish children and does not punish kids or whether they be young or adult children for their parents' sin. And why why do I say that with such confidence, even though it looks like that in Exodus 34? Well, firstly, we have to look at the character of God and his revelation throughout all of scripture. And when you talk about interpreting scripture, one of the first principles you, you learn and what we need to know is that scripture is the first interpreter of scripture. So that's why we don't just take one verse out of the Bible and create a a huge doctrine out of it. That's how cults get started. You know, that's how people get into weird stuff because they don't understand the Bible is God's revelation and there's there's a holistic nature to it. And you need to look at all 66 books, see the big picture, macro, and then zoom into the micro. And so we have Yahweh saying, look, I'm slow to anger. I'm abounding in love and faithfulness. This is who I am. And so we see here that he's revealing two sides of the same coin, if you will, because he's giving us the mercy, the love, the faithfulness, this side, but he's saying, but I don't ignore sin, okay? So we need to look at that. When you find something in the scripture that maybe feels uncomfortable to you, what I want you to do is before you make an accusation against God in your heart, in your spirit or whatever, I want you to consider who he really is and his character ultimately revealed in Jesus Christ. So you can't say, man, God is such a, he's such a stick of his buddy, such a jerk, because he gave his own son to pay for sin, okay? And I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, but we have to examine his character. But beyond that, what does, what does Yahweh actually say in the Bible? And, and I don't think we are potentially the first people to have been confused by what he meant when he said, I do not leave the guilty unpunished, and I visit the sins of the fathers upon the children up to the third and the fourth generation. Listen to what the prophet Ezekiel says, and he's, he's speaking the word of the Lord. Ezekiel chapter 18, which just incidentally, if you want to study this concept more, read Isaiah 1, read uh, Ezekiel 18, because this is a, there's a, a great theological framework here for understanding what we're talking about today. But Ezekiel 18 says, what you ask, doesn't the child pay for the parent's sins? No. Is that clear? That's why I can say, no, it's not what it doesn't, it isn't what it sounds like exactly. For if the child does what is right, just and right, and keeps my decrees, that child will surely live. The person who sins is the one who will die. The child will not be punished for the parent's sins, and the parent will not be punished for the child's sins. Thank you, Jesus. (laughs) Righteous people will be rewarded for their own righteous behavior, and wicked people will be punished for their own wickedness. But if wicked people turn away from all their sins and begin to obey my decrees and do what is just and right, they will surely live and not die. All their past sins will be forgotten and they will live because of the righteous things they have done. Uh, There it is. Yahweh's saying, no, no, no. It's not, you're not going to get punished for what somebody else did. You do the right thing, God's going to honor your right deeds. If you do the wrong thing, he's going to deal with your wrong things. Uh, So let's keep digging in. The prophet Jeremiah later is dealing with the the nation of Israel in exile. And these are God's chosen people, but now they're in Babylon. 
Um, they are there for, uh, what is it, 70, 80 years, I believe. They're in exile, and they're like, what the heck, God? You said you were faithful to us. Like, we're your people. Why do you take us out of the land? And so Jeremiah's dealing with this, and he says, um, he, he says, I pray to the Lord, saying, Ah, oh, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them. O great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts, great in counsel and mighty indeed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the children of man, rewarding each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. So Jeremiah interprets this, um, and, he, and he's saying, it's not that God is actually taking what the parents did and saying, well, your kids are going to pay for that. It means something else. There's a nuance to this. Listen to what the Bible project says. Jeremiah reflects on God's statement in Exodus, you repay the guilt of the fathers to the children after them. But then he continues to make clear what this really means. God will reward each person according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. In other words, Israel finds themselves in exile because the current generation repeated the sins of their fathers, the betrayal of the covenant. And this is a big deal right here. Because what God is doing in Exodus 34, if you understand the context, is he's speaking to his people about covenant. And what he's saying here, to sum it up in a nutshell, okay, is that your parents broke the covenant. I foresee you will break the covenant. And if you do the same stuff they did, then I will punish you the same way I punished them. That's what he's saying here. Okay? And there's more to it, though. Now, this verse makes clear that God doesn't punish children for their parents' sins. God does not punish a new generation for the sins of a former generation, but he does hold children who don't learn from their parents' mistakes accountable. In other words, God expects you not to, to, to mirror and just do what your parents did, but he expects you to walk with him. Do you know God does not have any grandchildren? He only has children. And so he expects that you would, would grow and learn and, and, and be responsive with him. And you can't say, well, my parents did this, therefore I did such and such a thing. No, God's going to hold you accountable for your stuff. It is the responsibility of every generation to not repeat the mistakes of those that came before him. Okay, so what does Exodus 34, 7 mean? I know I'm cooking with gasoline today, so we're going to keep going, but I got a lot to get through. You okay? Yes. All right. Exodus 34, 7, this passage we're talking about, potentially difficult. What does it mean? There's two parts to this. The first one is this, and we talked about kind of the, the context meaning, but Let's talk about maybe the impact for us. One, sin always has a downstream impact. Okay, we talked about how serious God is about sin because sin is the root of every problem. And I don't have time to really do justice to this, but if you think about it, we are all broken and we are all breakers. We're all victims. We're also all victimizers. And sin has infiltrated our story and infiltrated our world, even to the point where even creation itself groans to be saved, to be uh, redeemed. So even the earth, even the ground kind of cries out for God to, to make things right again. And whenever sin shows up in your story or in the story of the world or wherever, it always has a downstream impact. Now, I, I grew up in Medford uh, down in southern Oregon, and, and we were about 12 miles south of one of my favorite cities in the world, Ashland. And I love Ashland, the Shakespeare Festival, good food. Bethany and I love to go there and just hang out, walk around the city. It's an awesome place. And uh, growing up in Medford, all the conservative Christians were like, it's demonic. And we're like, why do we like that place so much? That might have given us a clue about our spiritual condition. No, we like, we, we like it because we like good food and art. But that, if that makes you demonic, then I'm sorry. But <laughs> that's funnier than you're giving me credit for. But anyways, <laughs> growing up in Medford, Ashland had a sewage treatment plant on Bear Creek, which flowed right through Medford. 
So I don't know if anybody that grew up in Southern Oregon or, or has been down there, but you would always hear as a kid, like, look out for the, the brown logs coming down Bear Creek, ooh, right? We were worried that being downstream from this sewage treatment plant that their poop was going to come our way, okay? Now, the reality is that was just a, a baseless fear. I mean, maybe not, but, but it was a, a baseless fear. But when it comes to sin, the poop does run downstream. When it comes to sin, it always impacts people downstream from you. And so what's being talked about here is that the sins of the parents definitely impact their kids. The alcoholic, abusive dad that beats his children, the immoral mother that abandons her kids, the parents who put their own selfish and sinful desires above their children, bringing divorce and strife, which the scripture says covers the garments with violence. Does sin have an impact? Of course it does. And this is not me telling you something you don't know, because we know that sin impacts people, whether intentionally or unintentionally. I mean, think about uh, 2008, the dishonest, greedy executives, Lehman Brothers, some of these places, the, the subprime mortgage crisis. Like, they were so greedy to loan out all this money and make money on interest that it crashed the economy to the point where thousands and hundreds of thousands of people lose their retirement. And it's like some greedy banker gets a golden parachute and a bunch of people suffer. Why? Because of their sin. Well, you say, well, that's not fair. Correct. That's why sin is such a big deal, right? Sin has a downstream effect. How about a drunk driver that, that takes someone's life? An innocent person who's just going to school or just walking down the street and a drunk driver uh, makes a decision because of their pain and their brokenness and gets in a car and does that. And we're not okay with that, are we? Um, the lust-driven rapist. The power-hungry, power-hungry, warmongering dictator. And on 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 it goes. Sin always hurts somebody. Romans 3 or 6.23 says this, the wages of sin is death. When sin goes on the table and it's time for payday, what comes is death. Death in your spirit. Death in your relationships. Death in your physical body. Death in your society. Sin brings death. It's not like, ah, oh, I just made a mistake. No, it brings death. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Sin brings death in all of our relationships, starting with our relationship with God. It, it, it literally wrecks the fabric of our reality, and that's why Yahweh is so serious about sin. And so when Yahweh says, look, I am slow to anger, I'm abounding in love and faithfulness, but I do not leave the guilty unpunished. God will not ignore sin. He has to do something. And I will visit the sins of the fathers upon the children, even to the third and the fourth, as it says in the Hebrew, which we'll look at in just a second, because it has a downstream impact. And I think when somebody has this sort of shallow, what I would call immature theology, where they see sin as just, it's mistakes. I just kind of made a little boo-boo. And, and all God has to do is, is, is wave his God wand and, and sort of, ooh, and then it's gone and it doesn't matter. Then we're missing the severity of this problem that Yahweh has to deal with. So one, sin has a downstream impact. Two, God is faithful to deal with sin as long as it takes. Because here's the big conundrum here. <clears throat> Not only does sin create victims, it also creates victimizers. Okay, don't miss this. Hurt people hurt people. God knows that sin spreads like a virus down through generations. Listen to what John Mark Comer says. We all come into the world carrying truckloads of baggage from our family line. Even today, in what is hands down the most individualistic society ever, we have sayings like, like father, like son, or the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. 
We vow, I will never be like my father or mother or grandfather or that weird aunt on my mother's side. But then to our dismay, we see the exact same dysfunctional patterns resurface in our own life. Some of us just can't escape our last name. All of which leads me to the last layer where we hit bedrock. I would argue that it's the main idea. Because Yahweh is just, he will continue to punish sin in each and every generation until it's completely gone. Put another way, don't think that because God punished your daddy for idolatry, you're off the hook for your own idolatry. God will punish you the same way he punished your father, the same way he punished your grandfather, the same way he punished your great-grandfather. Why? Because his end goal is a world free from evil. And he won't stop until the eradication of sin in your family line is complete. God wants to deliver the world from the destruction of sin. So he's got to get you and your entire family, past, present, and future, totally free. So as we go back to this passage, listen, it says God maintains. He continues faithful covenant love to thousands. But he doesn't let the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and the children's children to the four, third and the fourth. And Hebrew doesn't say generation, in, uh, but it's, it's creating a kind of a poetic thing. To the third and the fourth. This, this phrase, to the third and the fourth, is a Hebrew idiom. And what it means is whatever number it takes, however long it takes. What God is saying is, as long as it takes me to win in you and your family, I will continue to be faithful to deal with sin. Can I tell you, I had a dad who is an awesome dad. You're going to get to hear from my parents in a couple of weeks. They're going to be speaking up here, so that'll be fun. My dad's awesome. My mom is awesome. And my parents, um, they disciplined me and my siblings when we went off, you know, in sin, when we were doing wrong and we were disobeying and being, you know, whatever, doing bad stuff. They would discipline us. And what's interesting is that our culture and generation looks at parental discipline in, in many cases as either abuse or they look at it as, man, that person has an anger problem. They need to go to therapy or whatever. And yet we see a completely undisciplined, out of order, completely chaotic uh, generation of people who were not disciplined, who did not have a father there, who is faithfully dealing with their dysfunction. And uh, we, the results are pretty much speak for themselves, I would say, culturally. Um, to, to the point where even secular uh, soci- sociologists and, and people, psychologists are saying, one of the biggest issues and problems with our day is fatherlessness. What does a father represent other than an awesome beard, a deep voice, and loving to watch football? I mean, what does a father represent? Represents, in, in some measure, discipline. To say the buck stops here, okay? And so what God is saying is, as your father, not only will I love you in your good, but I will deal with your bad to deliver you from it, to bring you to freedom. Man, that's good. That is so good that God is like this. You don't get it, but I'm going to keep preaching it. That that God is so good that he doesn't leave us in our dysfunction. And even in my family, my daughter's sitting on the front row here, and I long for her to have a life of knowing the Lord and growing, but I know she's going to face her own battles. I know Jack's going to face his battles. I know Penelope is, and I'm doing my best as a sinful earthly father to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, but God is so good that he will not let the sins of our family line just be undealt with. He's going to faithfully pursue their heart as long as it takes. The verb in Hebrew, when it says to visit the sins of the parents upon the children, because that's what it actually says in the Hebrew, it's like saying God is going to keep a close eye on your kids and deal with this sin thing again and again for as long as it takes. Because sin is so serious, God won't ignore it, not in your parents, not in you, and not in your kids. But listen to what the Bible Project says about this. Don't miss the contrast that God makes in these verses. Generational accountability lasts through the third and the fourth, 
But God's loyal love lasts for thousands of generations. And so what God is is communicating to us is like, I will deal with sin. And yes, there is a spanking when there is sin that is present, whatever generation I find it in. But you will not get to the end of my covenant faithful love. I mean, that's just amazing. A couple of takeaways for us today, and then we'll go eat some donuts out there. Number one, Yahweh, God, is completely committed to justice. This is a huge deal in the scripture. We know our world is broken. We know this, and everybody wants someone to do something about it. We were up at a conference this week in Portland, and man, I'm proud of Eugene. I'm just going to say this. (laughs) Our city looks better. So give yourself a nice, you know. Uh, But before we get too self-congratulatory, this is our state. Man, that city is a wreck. There is garbage everywhere. There are people openly doing drugs on the streets. Like, it is a mess. Um, And that is sad because I love Portland, and I believe God has a wonderful plan for Portland. So I'm not a burn-it-all-to-the-ground person. I am am about redemption, right? Because I don't know how you can be a follower of Jesus and not be about redemption, not be about reconciliation. But when I look at that, I'm like, man, somebody needs to do something about this. That, you know, probably the biggest problem was so many of the coffee shops were closed, you know, and I was like, this is a personal injustice to me. <laughs> if I can't get coffee when I want it, you know, you're like, Pastor Jake, you're an addict. Okay, I know, but I'm in denial. All right, so somebody needs to do something. We look at our world, we go, man, this is broken. Somebody needs to do something about that. And it reminds me of Isaiah's prophetic lament over injustice. Isaiah 59 is like one of the coolest chapters in the Bible. So I'll just put that out there. Enjoy it this week. In Isaiah 59, our courts oppose the righteous and justice is nowhere to be found. Truth stumbles in the streets and honesty has been outlawed. I mean, this is the day that we're living in. Literally today, if you say something that is blatantly false, morally, ethically, scientifically, uh, even against the good of, of human flourishing, you will be celebrated And if you say something that is true and actually helps people, you will be, you know, criticized. And you can just decide what what that fits on because it fits on many categories in our world today. Um, And what what is happening is exactly what was happening here. Truth has fallen in the streets and and honesty has been outlawed. Yes, truth is gone. And anyone who renounces evil is attacked. The Lord looked and was displeased to find there was no justice. The Lord, Yahweh, looked because he is just. He's holy. He wants things to be right. He wants a sin-free, evil-free world, a world where the, a person's not abusing another person, taking advantage, right? He wants that world. That's what he created, a good world. And he looked and he saw there was no justice. And he was amazed to see that no one intervened to help the oppressed. So listen to this. So he himself wow. stepped in. I mean, I'm telling you, when God rolls up his sleeves, <laughs> that is a scary time. It actually has a name in the Bible. It's called the day of the Lord. And what the day of the Lord is, is when God finally says enough and rolls up his sleeves and says, now it's my turn. Now I get to speak into this. Now I will deal with this. It says he put on, it says he he himself stepped in to save them with his strong arm and his justice sustained him. And and then it goes on about he putting on righteousness like a body armor and he's getting ready for, for war and he's going to pay back. He's like, he's going to step in. God is completely committed to justice. When you look at this scripture and it says, God doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. Here's the question. What does God do with an Adolf Hitler? What does God do with an Osama bin Laden? 
What does God do with your abuser? What does God do with evil? Because to be a good God, he must be a just God. He must. You can't be good. If somebody comes in and, and attacks my family and my friend is there watching and you do nothing, I can't say you loved me. You were good. You cared for me. No, if you don't care for my people, then you don't care for me. And we can't say God is good if he allows abuse and injustice to stand undealt with. Okay? Are you following with me? It is impossible to believe in the perfect love of God apart from the perfect justice of God. How can a good and loving God allow the unrepentant rapist, the murderer, the thief, or the liar off the hook? And the answer is he can't. He cannot. I mean, there is no logical way to, to, to make this square if God doesn't deal with sin, if there isn't justice that is, that is brought to injustice. The uh, Eastern European theologian Miroslav Volf, he talks about this. I'm not going to go deep, but he basically says, um, if God were not angry at injustice, if uh, he didn't deal with it and make a final end of violence, then he wouldn't be worthy of our worship. And, and I think that's true. And, and if you haven't suffered or you haven't gone through injustice, which I know most of us have, um, then you wouldn't understand this. But when you actually have been wronged, you realize, no, something needs to be done to make it right. Yeah. Okay? God will judge sin and restore justice to our world. There will be a new heavens and a new earth where sin, suffering, and death are no more. But think about what that means for you and for me. Just for a moment. Because we have also served under the banner of injustice. Though we cry for justice, though we say someone needs to be held accountable for what's going on, we are also then saying, please judge me because I am part of the problem. We are the guilty ones. You see, it's easy to, to, to pick somebody like Adolf and be like, man, that sucky mustache and what a wicked jerk he was. And he was. But the same seed of evil that grew into a tree in the heart of Adolf Hitler is a bush or maybe a sycamore tree or a little plant in your heart. And God's perfection will not allow that to stand in, in any, any, any as much as even with what Hitler did. And so you're also part of the problem. And so when we cry out for justice, think about what this puts, the position God puts God in because he wants everybody to repent. He, want, he has to be just. He has to bring judgment. He has to bring justice. But also, we are part of the problem. And so he's completely committed to justice. And now here's the second takeaway. But Yahweh is also forgiving to the core. That's what he says. A lot of people think of forgiveness as something Jesus introduced, as if it was a new concept, foreign to Moses and the writers of the Old Testament. But that just shows how little time we spend in the Bible. The English word forgive is used all throughout the Hebrew scriptures. In Exodus 34, the Hebrew word translated as forgiving is nasa and it literally means to lift up to carry or take away and it's like a signpost john mark says pointing us to jesus who literally took the sins of the world upon himself he lifted them up he carried them away right into the the mouth of hell itself and john the baptizer called jesus the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world what does yahweh forgive the language here is wickedness rebellion and sin and it's three common words, and he goes on and talks about them. Wickedness is a von, it's just like everything bad, it's a junk drawer word. Uh, rebellion means to break the law, it's a legal uh, uh, word. And then the word hata, sin, is to miss the mark. It's like saying, I made a mistake, I, I did the wrong thing. Um, to sin is to miss the bullseye. Um, now these three words, he says, are joined together to cover the full breadth of human pollution. But the point here isn't to lay on a guilt trip. It's that Yahweh is forgiving of sins of all shapes and sizes. Okay, we're going to finish. 
Here comes Yahweh's mercy like a freight train. You ready for this? This is incredible to me. Not only is God good, he is smart, he's clever, he is savvy to deal with the stickiest problem, the, the, the greatest conundrum that you have in your hands in this world, a basket full of sinners that you want to redeem, who themselves are suffering but also causing suffering. How do you separate the wheat from the chaff? How do you deal with this problem? Listen to the heart of God. Ezekiel 18, moving on in that chapter we read earlier, referenced earlier, do you think that I like to see the wicked people die, says the Lord? Of course not. I want them to turn from their wicked ways and live. That's the heart of God. Do I want to see people die? No. I want them to turn and live. Second Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Listen to Romans 3. This is amazing. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are, for everyone has sinned. What's, it, what's being said here is you're not just suffering, you are also causing it. You're part of this problem. We all fall short of God's glorious standard, yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. And, and I want you to listen to this part right here. This is really in, incredible. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. When you cry out against injustice and you say, where is God? Why does the loving God allow this? Why, where does, why didn't he show up? Why didn't he stop this? Why didn't he intervene? What, what, what was going on here? Well, Paul tells us, God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past, for he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness for he himself is fair and just and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Yahweh was allowing the cup of sin and the cup of injustice in their lives and in our lives to get fuller than anyone else thinks it should possibly get. I mean, when you think about all the things you've done in your life that would deserve you to be smited, how many of you know like, have you ever had those thoughts like, I should probably be smited for that? <laughs> you know, the angry atheist who says, well, God knows my address. He can come to my door. And if he doesn't like it, he can just shoot me with lightning right now. And those of us that fear the Lord are like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> where's the lightning? Where's the, where's the thunderbolt? Well, listen to what Paul's saying here. He's saying, God... His mercy is so driving him to find a resolution that he waited to pour out his wrath. And where does he pour out his wrath? What we find out is he pours it out upon Christ at the cross. And all sin is judged in Jesus who became sin for us and becomes Adolf Hitler and becomes Pol Pot and becomes the murderer, the, the liar, the rapist and who's the, the presence of God pulls away from him and it says his father turns his face and he's rejected and he's... he's his death is paid and, and punished in that moment. The cross is Yahweh's perfect resolution of mercy and justice, the two sides of this coin. He cannot ignore sin, but this is who he is. He wants people to turn. 
like the crescendo of a great symphony. No sinner will escape justice, but every sinner can be a saint. No sin left unpunished, but no sinner left without hope. Jesus is Yahweh, compassionate and gracious. Rachum vachanun, arech apaim, slow to anger, abounding in chesed and faithfulness, amet. Maintaining covenant love forever and warring with sin as long as it takes to win in you and your children and your children's children. He is relentlessly good. He is faithful forever. He is Yahweh. And at the cross, all sin is punished and justice is served. And every person that says, I receive what Jesus did for me is brought into the mercy of Yahweh. And all who reject it will still face justice and no sin will be left unpunished. That's why there is no such thing as the gospel without the bad news, that there is a hell, there is judgment, whatever that hell looks like, we can talk about that another time, whatever the judgment looks like isn't so much important, here's what matters, it's forever, it's really bad, you don't want it. Every sinner that says, I don't want what Jesus did for me, I will reject the mercy of Yahweh, because make no mistake, that's what you're doing, is you're rejecting the mercy. It's not that you have a higher moral ground to stand on, You're part of the problem. You have, yes, suffered, but you've also created suffering. You have experienced sin externally, but it's also in you and it's in your family and it's on you and and and, and it needs to get dealt with. And God dealt with it at the cross. And he took all of the downstream impact and he took all of that chaos and all of that death and he, he became it and he was punished for it and he offers to you the free gift of eternal life, free gift of forgiveness. That is beautiful. That is this relentlessly good God. That is Yahweh. That is who we serve. That is who we worship. That is who we labor with to bring his kingdom come and let his will be done in our place where, like it's done in his place. So today, as we get ready to close, I'd like you just bow your head and close your eyes. And uh, this is a two-part response. For, for those of you who don't know Jesus, who aren't a follower of Jesus, this is a great time to say, I want that mercy and I receive it for myself and I choose to be a follower of Jesus. I choose to, to give him my life and claim him as my Lord and Savior. For any of us that are followers of Jesus, I pray that this message would wreck us a little bit. Like, wreck us a little bit. Because when we think about justice and who deserves it and who gets forgiven and who doesn't and all this kind of stuff, we need to come back to Yahweh dealt with this. He, he dealt with sin. And I'm working for reconciliation and redemption. And my job is not to fix the world. My job is not to save the world. My job is to point people to the one who already did and work every day to see his kingdom come and his will be done in my life. If you're here today and you say, Pastor Jake, I want to put my faith and trust in Jesus, would you just raise your hand real quick? Just raise your hand up. Thank you so much. Thank you. I want to put my faith in Christ. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. Awesome. Would you pray this prayer? We're all going to pray it together. Dear Jesus, I give you my life. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for your mercy, forgiving my sins, taking away my sins at the cross. I give you my life today in Jesus' name. Amen.